Turn to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Dad's home. Mom's coming. The police are here. What do those phrases fill you with? What do they make you feel? What do they make you think? There's a lot of ways that they could make you feel, right? Maybe the thing that immediately occurs to you is, oh no, right? I'm in trouble. I've done something and I know it and they're about to know it. But what each of those phrases have in common is that they can mean totally different things to you depending on the context, depending on what you have been doing. So if they're about to catch you doing the very thing they told you before they left not to do, then the, the words, they're back are going to fill you with fear, dread, anxiety, and probably cause you either to try to very quickly cover up whatever it is you've been doing, or maybe just freeze, right? And think, oh no, until the door opens. But, if on the other hand... You've had a long wait with your head stuck between the bars of the fence and you can't figure out how to get your head out. The fact that mom is here or that dad is coming is going to fill you with a very different feeling, right? It's going to fill you with great relief that now finally your help has arrived. Someone who can actually do something for you. Someone who can actually rescue you from this terrible situation that you're in. Paul says something very similar in our passage today. He says, the Lord is near. Now, to hear mom's coming may be easier for us to connect with Immediately, but to hear the Lord is near is an infinitely bigger statement with infinitely more weight on it, right? The Lord is that much higher above all of us than mom is above the little newborn baby. Or the two-year-old. Or even the 16-year-old, right? (laughs) To hear that the Lord is near 
ought to fill us with something great because it's the Lord. It is your creator, your maker. It is the one who you are responsible to. It is the one who has given you purpose in life in the first place. It's the one who you are to be like. He is the one whose image you are made in. The Lord is near has great meaning. The Lord is near holds immense weight. It holds immense power for us. Now, the question is, what is it supposed to create in us? What sort of feeling should that create in us? Is it meant to be something that fills you with dread? Or is it meant to be something that fills you with peace? And of course, it all depends, right? (laughs) On what you've been doing. But when Paul writes it here, Paul means it as an encouragement to believers. Paul means it as an encouragement. Is it an encouragement to you to hear that the Lord is near? Let's read this passage now. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Remember the context of this book is that Paul is... What? Kids? Paul is where? 
Huh? In jail, that's right. Nailed it. Paul is in jail. Paul is in prison as he's writing this book. And he has hit on this theme of rejoicing in the Lord several times in the book. And it's not that long of a book. It's We, we, we call it a letter, right? And it is a letter. He wrote it to a particular group of people, church in Philippi. It's not that long of a letter for Paul. (laughs) Compared to uh, Romans, it's downright short. And yet, how often does he exhort the church there in this short little letter to... Rejoice over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Could add again there, to write the same thing to you again is no trouble to me. (laughs) Right? How many times will he write to the church in Philippi, to rejoice. Of course, in, for us to uh, finish filling out the context is important because it's not just important what's going on with Paul, Paul being in prison at this time, but also what's going on with that church in Philippi as well. So what is happening with that church in Philippi? Well, they are also facing suffering. They are also facing dangers, both uh, theological dangers, spiritual dangers, as well as dangers of persecution and those that are seeking to harm them specifically for their faith. We know this for several reasons, but we also know it to be true for ourselves because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sometimes that's more intense than others. Sometimes are more dangerous than others. But the church in Philippi needs to be reminded, needs to be exhorted to this rejoicing in the Lord always because there are many temptations, many reasons that it would feel very easy to justify ourselves in not rejoicing, right? How easy is it to come up with something to be sad about? It's pretty easy, isn't it, in this life? So you think about that theme running through this book, that thread of Paul's rejoicing, urging them to rejoice, giving them reasons to rejoice, and we realize that we need to remind ourselves of reasons to rejoice, not reasons to be grumpy 
right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. But this flows out of, in this immediate passage, out of that urging that he has given them to unity in that body, to harmony between Euodia and Syntyche, to asking everybody else to help with the work. And there's nothing like the kind of unity that you get from working with one another. And there's nothing like the kind of disunity that you get from working with one another. (laughs) You're going to go one direction or the other as you seek to work with each other. As you seek to put your hands to the same kind of work, yes, you, you have the opportunity to really, what they say in corporate, you know, come together as a team. To use corporate speak, right? And it's true. If, if you have if you have the opportunity to work with people, you have the opportunity to really be satisfied in what you're able to do together that's far more than you could ever accomplish by yourself. You have, you have opportunity to be thankful for the things that the other people are doing, and yet you also have the opportunity to be very irritated with people that are not, in your mind, pulling their weight to be frustrated with people who are not placing enough emphasis or priority on the areas and specific things that you think need to be emphasized, right? Trying to work together will either reveal a unity of purpose or it will reveal a disunity, and that disunity of purpose will result in fighting. Until you end up, until you have the same goal, the same purpose as one another, the attempt to work with somebody is going to simply be an exercise in futility and frustration. So he urges them to have the kind of unity that he has explained earlier in the book that comes out of being united in work with one another. And that work is what? The gospel. The gospel going forth, being proclaimed, being expounded, explained, lived out in the lives of all of those church members in Philippi. And this is why when he moves on from urging Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, brings to the foreground the fact that they have worked together. They have struggled with him in the cause of the gospel. And so he's bringing back that reminder of the fact that there is true unity and that if we keep that first and foremost, then there will flow out of that the unity that he is urging on them, that they won't bicker, that they won't argue, that that they'll be able to be profitable 
and helpful along with all the others. True companion, you know, Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. And who are those fellow workers? People whose names are in the book of life. Those are the fellow workers. Think about that. He's saying there is true unity among all those people. Why? We are all in the Lord. We are all in the Lord. And so then we're going to, you know, just hold that thought and think about him saying the Lord is near. And think about the impact of the Lord is near, that statement. Think about the impact of that on the work when we're all united in the Lord. We're all united in the work that he has given to his church, that great commission. This is why Paul, when he says early in the book, rejoice, he doesn't say to them, uh, because, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. Because the persecution is going to stop. Because these people who are causing you trouble are going to go away. Matter of fact, they're not going to go away. You're going to have to keep watching out for them, he says. But what does he say? He says, all of the people who are my guards and a whole bunch of people in the household, and you know, they're all hearing the gospel. <laughs> and so the work is going forward, and therefore we can rejoice. That's the evidence that he gives. That's the impetus behind him saying, rejoice. Rejoice, why? Well, because the gospel is going forth. And then here, he comes back to that unity, and he says, don't fight with each other. Get along with one another. Live in harmony in the Lord, and help one another live in that unity. Remember, your names are in the book of life. Our harmony is in the Lord. We've shared together struggling in the cause of the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Why do you rejoice at that time? Well, we've talked about the context. Paul's in jail. Philippians are suffering. It's easy to come up with justifications for why you shouldn't have to rejoice at this particular moment. And then he says, you know, unity, from from unity, from not fighting with each other, he proceeds to that reminder to rejoice in the Lord. And then he throws in this exhortation, be gentle in spirit, not just Euodia and Syntyche to one another, Imagine how bad things would be if Euodia and Syntyche got along in fighting with everybody else. <laughs> would that be, a, you know, a step forward? No, that would be a lot of steps backwards, right? For Euodia and Syntyche to get along with one another has to be in the true and proper unity. There's, there's many ways of us coming to unity in fighting with somebody else that are very, very bad. And so he, he then 
expands the statement saying, actually, you know, this peace needs to be exhibited in a way that it actually goes outside the church to the rest of the world, that everybody can see your gentleness of spirit. Everybody can see it. So this is not a case where two brothers are fighting with one another, picking on each other, punching each other, arguing constantly, and somebody else comes up and makes a comment about one of them, and suddenly they're both united in pounding that third person. Right? You you see that is a lack of a gentleness of spirit, right? You You all see how that would be exactly the opposite of what Paul is going for? But that's what... That's what we often do. We often give ourselves to uh, no desire for real unity, bickering, fighting, complaining, and then we are suddenly reminded that we have something in common with one another, that we're brothers, right? When somebody else from the outside starts causing trouble. And then we unite in punching them. We unite in trying to get them. This, this might sound to some of you anyway like something crazy. Like that would never happen. How could people who are actively fighting with one another suddenly be united in fighting somebody else? But it happens all the time. As a matter of fact, police officers know that the worst thing you could possibly try to do is stop two people from fighting, especially if they're a couple. You never want to go to the house of a domestic disturbance or a domestic dispute. As a police officer, it's very, very dangerous. Why? Well, Because they might both be trying to kill one another actively when you show up, and your job is to stop them from killing each other. And then they're both trying to kill you. It's absurd, but that's what flows out of... Think, if you just think about your heart, if you think about a, a fighting heart, a pugnacious spirit, the opposite of what he's calling us to, right... If you think about someone who loves violence and conflict, what you see is that, of course, whoever they're dealing with is who they're fighting with. So the moment that another party is involved, it's not like suddenly that spirit turns into one of gentleness. The violent spirit is still there. And so the violence continues, only with more parties. Pastors also know the danger of speaking to husbands and wives because often what you find 
in beginning to counsel a couple that's fighting is that they're quickly united in agreement that you are actually the problem in their marriage, not either of them. If you don't believe me, you can believe me. (laughs) So Paul recognizes, understands that the kind of unity that he's seeking and that rejoicing in the Lord that must happen in the church of Christ actually works its way out, that sort of spirit is going to be visible to people in the outside as a spirit of gentleness, not as a pugnacious spirit. Now, kids, do you know what the word pugnacious means? Anybody? You could think of it uh, maybe as a punch-a-face spirit. Pugnacious means you're always arguing, always fighting. You're pugnacious. You're, you're looking, cruising for a bruising, looking for a fight, right? <clears throat> And so, we have to realize that the same temptation is going to face us as a broader... If, it, if, if we see this with brothers who will suddenly unite and fight somebody else, if you see it with couples who will suddenly unite and fight somebody else, that actually we would expect to see the same thing in, in larger groups. That as a church body, we could, if we were not truly united with one another, also unite in being angry and attacking other people. So the exhortation to be gentle in spirit with everybody comes out of Paul's knowledge that the temptation to fight those persecuting you is particularly strong. That's, a, that's, a, that's one that is going to feel very justified for the church to unite in being angry at and fighting with those who are persecuting Paul, their beloved pastor, or themselves, Right? And yet, what are we supposed to do to those who persecute us? Do any of you kids know? Yeah. Love them. There's a particular, yes, but, but there's, there's even more particular command. Liam, did you have a different answer? You, you had the same answer? Yeah, Ben? Pray for them, that's right. And what are you supposed to pray for them? Do you think the, the prayer is, Oh Lord, may the ceiling fall on them tomorrow at school? 
Is that what we're supposed to pray? That would be rather pugnacious, wouldn't it? That wouldn't be a gentle gentleness of spirit, would it? No, our unity is supposed to drive us to love for them, yes, to praying for them, yes, and even to proclaiming the gospel to them. Think about that. Remember our unity of purpose? Our unity of purpose is that the gospel would be made known that God's command would be fulfilled through the church. Now, I recognize that There are a lot of things that may pop up as questions in your mind. There always are the moment that we begin talking about uh, loving your enemies. The moment that you talk about praying for those who persecute you, somebody wants to bring up the Psalms. What Psalms? What? The imprecatory Psalms. And so, then when these next words follow, I won't say all is made clear, but the answer is there. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. How are you supposed to respond to those who persecute you with a gentleness of spirit. The King James translates it with moderation. Moderation. And so when we read that statement, The Lord is near. Is it a threat? Well, it's a threat to God's enemies, isn't it? But it is only a threat to God's enemies. To his children, it is precisely what they need at that moment. Precisely what they need to remember, and he is precisely what they need. They need him near. Now, why do his children need him near? Sometimes it is so that they will stop doing that thing that they know they're not supposed to be doing, right? To hear the Lord is near at that moment is a good reminder to those who fear the Lord to turn away from Sin in repentance, isn't it? To those who don't fear the Lord, to hear that the Lord is near, is a threat. It's not a promise of uh, 
It's not a promise of hope to those who refuse to bow their knee to him. But it is a promise of judgment. But to the church in Philippi, to us, to believers, if you have put your faith in him, if we have unity in Christ with one another, it is not, the Lord is near. It is, the Lord is near. And that is the reason why you're able to rejoice in all of these trials and tribulations, in all of these circumstances, to rejoice during persecution. It's why you are able to respond with gentleness of spirit, with moderation, no matter what happens. And remember, it's not just persecution that may come. There are many disasters that befall man in this life, aren't there? Loss of health, of money, of jobs, of children, of life. All of these things are difficult trials that Christians go through that we are called in unity in the Lord to respond with moderation in. And so even when we lose a loved one, we mourn, but we do not mourn without moderation. We do not cut ourselves. We do not, you you, you see the moderation? Why? Well, because we do not mourn as those who have no hope, but we mourn knowing that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And what does that mean? It means that he will carry us through. And so you think of the Psalms and you think about the imprecatory Psalms calling for God's judgment on his enemies who are persecuting us. And you also think of the fact that he will raise us up that we will be sheltered under his wings, that he will be a rock and a fortress, a stronghold, that he will use his powerful right hand on our behalf. That vengeance is his and that he will repay. All of these are delightful promises that we have and that we are reminded of when we are told The Lord is near. He is near. It is precisely for that reason that we can have a gentle spirit no matter what comes. Got two stories for you to think about related to this. Both of them have to do with a horse in different ways. Think about a horse that has been injured. I'm sure you've seen this kind of thing in movies or read about it in books. If you don't have any experience with horses, which I have almost none. But think about a horse that's been injured, right? Or any animal that's been injured. What is its natural response 
to somebody coming towards that injury. The natural response is to lash out, right? To lash out, out of fear for what may happen, that it may be touched, that the pain will increase, that they'll take advantage of that injury, of that weakness, right? This is the natural response. And yet, if somebody who is good with horses is trying to treat them, they will be a calming influence on the horse even while attempting to get close to that injury and begin to work on it. What is it that calms the horse? It is the nearness of a person that they know and can trust to care for them and be doing good for them. You see? It's the nearness of someone who is able to help. Some people have a gift for that. I don't. (laughs) Not with animals. The other story I want you to think about is uh, Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson was noted, he was, he was known for his, I would say, for his moderation in battle. Now, what do I mean by moderation? What I mean is that he rode around on his horse with bullets flying all around calmly. He was calm in the midst of raging war. And when asked, Why are you so calm? How can you be so calm? How can you be so in control and and moderate in these circumstances? His answer was, God is in control. The Lord is near. He's not far away. He's not missing. He's not too far away to help. He's not too far away to be influencing. He's not too far away to be in control. The Lord is in control. And therefore, I am safe. When my time comes to die, that will be my time. The Lord is in control of it. And so therefore, I can ride around on the battlefield without fear because he's in control. And I know he's in control. It is his knowledge... It was, it was Stonewall Jackson's knowledge of the nearness of the Lord that allowed him to be calm and collected in the raging storm. Where else have we seen that? Well, the raging storm, of course, is where Jesus was calm and collected. As a matter of fact, sleeping in the boat. While the apostles were not sleeping, but freaking out, Right? And this is what we want to do whenever bad things start happening or when things start to feel out of control to us. We start losing the the what has always only ever been an illusion of our own control, right? And we start losing that illusion and realize we're not in control and we freak out. 
But if we didn't have that illusion in the first place and we had the knowledge that the Lord is near, then we would be able to respond to a storm with moderation and a gentle spirit instead of yelling at Jesus. I mean, have you ever thought about that? That's like the got to be one of the worst responses ever. There's a storm, Jesus. What's wrong with you? But isn't that what we always do when there are storms? God, there's a storm. What's wrong with you? Don't you know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be? I'm being persecuted. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And so, that, that spirit, that, that how we respond when persecutions come, how we respond when trials, when troubles, when tribulations come, that is the first after rejoicing in the Lord at all times, right? That is the first of the things, of, of a whole list of things that Paul gives that we are enabled to do as believers because of the Lord's nearness. It is not the only thing by any stretch of the imagination that we are called to do or able to do. So it's not this instance where uh, we fake a calm and collected, okay, now what we're going to do is, and on the inside, it's raging frustration and utter terror or, you know, and like until you can get out of the sight of somebody else, close the door and then scream, right? Or holding that together, but in the meantime, responding with terrible sin in some other area of our life, what does Paul go on to say? He says, be anxious for nothing. He calls us to prayer and supplication, to thanksgiving, to make our requests made known to God. We'll, we'll continue into this list. And then this, this beautiful promise that the peace of God a peace which is beyond our comprehension will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I'm looking forward to studying that together with you. Do you have a gentle spirit? How do you respond when the world throws you a curveball, when you're given lemons, as all of these kinds of statements come, right? The, the saying, of course, is you're supposed to what? Make lemonade. Well, lemonade's good. I like lemonade. But that doesn't even begin to touch having a gentle spirit responding with 
the moderation that comes out of knowledge that the Lord is near. That yes, he's watching you and therefore your behavior ought to be obedient behavior. Yeah, that flows out of the fear of the Lord. Absolutely, knowing that he's near should cause us to reconsider our actions. But much more than that. It allows us to rest in him. It allows us to react with gentleness when we don't get what we want. And how much of the time in this life do we not get what we want? You're playing the game and the card turns up and it's exactly the wrong card. And then what? You're fighting over a game. Trying to change the rules and argue about what happens next. Complaining that it's not fair. A moderate, gentle spirit responds to getting the wrong card, the one that's going to make you lose, with cheerfulness, with a gentle spirit. Good game. Of course, a card game is easy for us adults to some of us anyway, to uh, have moved beyond that level of aggression and competition in games uh, to laugh at people who have trouble being a good sport when they're losing a game as an adult. (laughs) And yet many adults still struggle with that, I can testify. What about bigger things in life? What about real suffering? Losing a card game is hardly suffering. What about if you break your leg? What about if your child is injured or lost? What if you are suffering serious persecution? Does the fact that the Lord is near mean anything? Does it bring you comfort? Does it carry a real weight like hearing, Mom's coming? And remember, That's supposed to be positive. (laughs) Because it's at those times when you're you're in trouble, when when you need help, that we're talking about. That you want him to come. Think of Paul singing in jail. Singing songs. That's gentleness of spirit in response, isn't it? And not only singing songs, but then when he's freed, 
by God miraculously, what does he do? He starts loving the jailer. How is he able to do that? How is he able to sing in the first place? Because he knows the Lord is near. How is he able to immediately start loving the jailer? Because he knows the Lord is near. The Lord is protecting him. And so he can preach to the guy who might just decide to take the sword and instead of killing himself, start killing the prisoners. That's what the soldiers wanted to do when they were about to be shipwrecked. Remember? And, and Paul, what does he do? He saves their lives. Think about that. What gentleness of response we have modeled to us by him, don't we? So if I say to you, if Paul says to us, if we get that reminder, the Lord is near. Let that be a comfort to you. That no matter what circumstances you are facing, you can rest in him. And if you are resting in him and on that rock, and nothing can shake you, and nothing can move you, then you can respond to anything gently, with moderation, knowing that the Lord is not just near, He is right here among us. Let us pray.